this is a part of a female's anatomy and body and part of your healthcare in general. For us not to be able to talk about that is wrong. And I think until we can start making change in that department, it's always going to be this hush-hush thing. It's always going to be, oh, it's provocative to invest in a women's healthcare company. It should not be provocative. It's healthcare. Welcome to Hymnscast. I'm Laura Lovett. I'm the managing editor at Moby Health News. Today we have with us Maria Velasaris, who is the co-founder and managing partner at Still Sky Ventures, and Colette Cordion, who is the CEO of Joylux. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Thanks for having us. We're just going to talk a little bit about the femtech industry today and also some challenges that the femtech industry faces. Um, women's health companies are quickly gaining steam in the world of digital health, as well as funding. According to Rock Health, the sector nicknamed Femtech went from just five deals in 2013 to 18 deals in 2018, worth $388 million. However, the Femtech industry is facing several challenges. According to Rock Health reports, only about 3% of deals in the digital health space in the U.S. since 2011 have focused on women's health. But this isn't the only challenge for these companies. I'd love to talk a little bit about challenges in digital health and sort of dive into some of these topics. Um, you know, Colette, you have been working from the ground up on Joylux. What has your experience been or what are you seeing as the biggest challenges with femtech companies right now? Yeah, where do you want to start? <laughs> um, I, I have been one of the early pioneers in this space, and we have faced uh, many obstacles along our journey. Uh, but despite all that, here we sit in 2020, and I couldn't be more optimistic about our future. Uh, so if we'd like to start, I, I, obviously, the, the first challenge that, you know, has been difficult for us and one that you just really spoke to was just funding. Uh, as you said, uh, you know, 3% of deals are women's health deals. And so... Uh, I believe women's uh, femtech companies have really been underfunded. You mentioned that um, in 2018, there was $380 million that went to um, 18 deals, if I got that correctly. What's interesting is there was one uh, male company, one um, sexual health company, that it alone got $100 million. Uh, one company, $100 million, and that company is called Hims, and they're dealing with erectile dysfunction. So women's health is still a really underserved um, uh, market when it comes to funding. Um, and I hope, you know, as we get more and more attention uh, to women's health and the massive opportunity that that's going to change. Uh, secondly, Advertising women's health products has been really challenging uh, because there is unfortunately uh, a double standard when it comes to advertising versus male products. So when we look at male specific health issues, um, as an example, erectile dysfunction, um, that's been an issue that's been talked around, talked about for decades and has been advertised for decades. I, I think we all can remember a time when we saw an ED commercial air on television or the radio or certainly on the internet. But with women's health, it hasn't been uh, the same in part because 
when talking about the women's body and specifically vaginal health or the vagina, that is a word that has been banned by these advertising platforms. So whether it's a TV ad or a social ad or a, a, you know, a Facebook ad or a Google ad, talking about vagina has been deemed pornographic and has been associated with porn sites as opposed to women's health. And so anytime a company is talking about a product that is improving the health of the vagina, they're unable to say that word. So in the case of Joylux, which our product, by the way, is a women's health product that deals with common issues like incontinence and vaginal dryness, we've had to be really creative on how we talk about the product since we can't talk about the body part. So we use words that allude to vaginal health but don't quite say vaginal health. And so as a result, women often are confused. Like, well, what exactly is intimate health? And what's the pelvic floor? And, and so they're, they're often confused. And as a result, it's going to impact the performance of your ads and the ads spent. So what I'm seeing, though, is as more and more companies in the femtech space are dealing with this challenge and, and coming to market, we're starting to see some flexibility with the ad uh, platforms. So we're starting to see them relook and reexamine companies like ourselves and say, okay, well, maybe you're not pornographic, so we'll let you advertise, but you still have to use these these kind of clever words. So we're not yet at a place where we have uh, equality when it comes to uh, male health products, but it's getting better. And I hope that as more and more companies uh, and certainly more and more uh, media partners or, or people such as yourself doing podcasts, the more that we talk about it and the more that we raise visibility that this isn't a bad thing, like talking about women's health, talking about vaginal health, it's important. It's, it's vital to women's overall health. So the more that we embrace it and talk about it, the uh, closer we are getting at changing, making change happen uh, in the world and getting these um, platforms to understand that this is good for everybody in the long run. You know, I'd love to get your take too, Maria, on sort of that looking at the whole industry where there are some restrictions around advertising, what does that do to women's health companies sort of in the long run, um, you know, in that bird's eye view, what does that look like? Well, it's much more challenging for these types of companies to get funding. So as Colette mentioned, because she's not able to market, she's not able to get her revenues up to probably where they would be as fast as say a hymns would because she's impacted by marketing. She can't affect efficiently and effectively market her product. And because if she can't get in two years to an increase in XYZ revenue, then it's going to signal to um, investors that this may be a company that doesn't have a great product market fit. It may have slow adoption and it may signal to the market something that's not true, that people aren't interested in these products. But it's really just because they're not giving the amount of capital that they need to scale efficiently and effectively um, because of the waterfall effect down from these even marketing um, challenges that they have. So it can affect the entire industry. If this continues to keep happening and the entire industry doesn't grow and we don't produce billion dollar companies and we don't have amazing exits, 
this, this investment that we've been seeing that's been trickling into the space will be no more. So there's people like Colette that are really in the forefront of the industry. And if she's not successful, and if these other women's health companies aren't successful, then the, the thesis is not proven. And it's you know gone back to what everybody says is that women's health is too niche. They can't be successful, they can't be big. And so that are, you know, those are really serious ramifications to an entire industry um, based on things that go all the way back to marketing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, what are you seeing even on what is being blocked? Um, you know, what messages are, are not getting out there? What what kind of healthcare is sort of um, in that space of, I know, Colette, you sort of alluded to this, um, but what is in that space of maybe um, being just too, I, I know, in the, in the taboo realm to get out there? And what does that, what does that mean to women that, that some of their health is too taboo? Yeah, so, you know, when I, when I speak to women's health, I'm speaking it uh, from the lens of uh, women's intimate health. So anything having to do with her, uh, her reproductive organs or her vagina or things that are, you know, typically been deemed as taboo. But a really, you know, solid example is sexual wellness. So with erectile dysfunction, that is all about sexual function for a man. If you can't have an erect penis, then you can't enjoy sex. Uh, is, you know, is, you know, why they allow, uh, you know, male products to be promoted. Because if you can't have sex, then you can't make babies. And if you don't make babies, then, you know, the world falls apart. So that's how the, the advertisers see it. Well, of course, we have to allow erectile dysfunction ads to be okay, and it's okay to talk about male uh, sexual wellness because that's part of reproduction. What they're saying is, but for women, well, it doesn't matter if her uh, uh, vagina works or not, uh, she could still have a baby. So therefore, we shouldn't be talking about sexual wellness for a woman because then that is really about pleasure, and pleasure is, is deemed to be, um, you know, inappropriate to uh, talk about on uh, a, ch a social platform like Facebook, because that could, you know, get into then being okay to talk about pornography and, and, and things like that. Well, this is where they're simply wrong. Because a woman, well, technically, a woman, yes, could have a baby and not enjoy the, the act. But let's be honest, if a woman is having pain within her course, if a woman is experiencing issues down there, she won't have sex and then you won't have reproduction. So uh, it's silly for these advertisers to put, try to define sexual wellness in terms of simply reproduction. And that's where we've got to change the, the thinking. Um, another example around this is what's interesting is while they say erectile dysfunction is for reproduction purposes, do you know that it's erectile dysfunction only impacts or really only impacts men over the age of 65 who are well beyond their reproductive years, right? So it doesn't make sense. So we just have to change the perception of these companies that are making these ad policies. And sadly, you know, the people making the ad policies are generally men. <laughs> so we need to educate them on the importance that having a, a body that functions, whether it's the vagina or, you know, your heart is all part of 
overall health and well-being. So it really takes education, and, and that means sitting down with people making these ad policies and trying to find words that, um, uh, you know, work. So for us, you know, where we've been blocked is because we said the word vagina, even though it was done in the context of you may suffer from vaginal dryness or, um, or you may ha suffer from sexual dysfunction. And, and because we use the word sexual function um, as it relates to women's health, we've been blocked. So then that's where we start to get creative and that's where the consumer is going, huh, what's intimate wellness? What does that mean? So, uh, you know, it, it, going back to what Maria says, if we can't advertise our products and we can't get the message effectively across, then we're not gonna hit the sales that we need to hit, which then means the companies are not gonna have the successful outcomes that perhaps a, a male health company would. Yeah, that's really insane. And, um, you know, specifically, you were talking about Facebook. So I just want to make sure um, to put it into context. Uh, the policy reads, adverts must not promote the sale of or use of adult products or services unless they promote family planning or contraception. Adverts for contraception must focus on the contraceptive features of the product and not on the sexual pleasure or sexual enhancement. It must be targeted at people age 18 years or older. Um, so it's the specific, you know, kind of regulations around that, um, just to put that in a little bit of, of context of what, um, you know, it's kind of playing off of. And now, Colette, you talked a lot about education. What, would, what do you think, um, you know, what do we need to see from both investors and what do we need to see from also kind of the community? And I mean, maybe, Maria, do you want to take that with investor education? What would that look like? I think that we need to stop pattern matching. Colette needs to be able to walk into any VC and feel comfortable pitching her product, whether she's talking about breast care, whether she's talking about a financial tool, or whether she's talking about a pelvic health device. She should not feel scared or she should not feel like she's going to be unwelcome people should be open to hearing about these stigmatized products and services it's really just not fair because if they choose not to take meetings with women who are talking about sexual health products um, and women's health products then they are choosing to ignore a huge part of the market and these companies will not have the opportunity to grow and put their products into the market which can really help and benefit lots of people around the world so i think number one is everybody has to be comfortable with talking like this and the policies that facebook and these other companies has put in place do not advocate or encourage conversation around these topics and once these things can become more conversational and they can become um, just a part of your social dialogue then it won't be so taboo we sh it should not be taboo this is a part of a female's anatomy and body and part of your health care in general for us not to be able to talk about that is wrong and i think until we can start making change in that department it's always going to be this hush hush thing it's always going to be oh it's provocative to invest in a women's health care company it should not be provocative it's health care yeah, I'd love to get your kind of take on this, Colette. What has it been like educating different groups, you know, from investors to even sort of the end users? Well, yeah, when I first started fundraising, uh, I, I literally got shut out. I couldn't get a, a, a male investor to invest in the company. And so I started 
uh, raising capital from female-led, uh, uh, you know, female-focused funds, angel, female angels, because they all understood it. And obviously they weren't, you know, they get how big the problem is. We're, we're starting to see more and more company uh, VC funds now look at the space. So um, we are seeing that open up. Having said that, there's been no big investments that have happened yet in women's intimate health or sexual health. I mean, there's been some small investments made, but nothing to the level that a HIMSS has gotten. Um, so, you know, but let's hope it <laughs> changes soon to all the points that Maria has brought up. Um, I once, though, pitched, as an example, I once pitched a VC firm who said by far, wow, what you've accomplished with what you've raised is significant. You've done more than any of our portfolio companies, especially given all of the obstacles. But at the end of the day, my partners and I don't feel comfortable sitting around a Monday uh, partner meeting talking about vaginas. And so they passed. And so, you know, that's really frustrating because, you know, from my perspective and to what Maria just said, a vagina is just part of the anatomy. It's what, you know, it's, it's really no different than an arm or a leg. And I don't know why we have such a hang up talking about it. it it's, it, you know, perplexes me now, but of course I've been in it for six years. So I talk about vaginas every day. Um, uh, so, but we really need to just let that go. Um, where I'm starting to see change is when people are, to, uh, the media is talking about it. So for instance, Forbes magazine picked up um, two weeks ago on menopause, the menopausal market being a $600 billion opportunity with a highly motivated consumer who is spending upwards of $2,000 each year on products in this category, yet the, the venture capital world has yet to invest really any real money in this space. But now we're starting to see people say, oh, hey, Colette, tell me about what you're doing again, because of these stories that the media are writing about. So I think it's really important that um, people like you and, and the media keep writing about these stories because the more visibility we uh, bring to how big of a market opportunity this and how untapped, eventually the big VCs will get it. Same with Facebook. It, you know, we were blocked until um, there were several articles written about why our company was blocked with examples of ads that we did that were by no means uh, even touching upon what you just said, sexual wellness, they were very, what I call family G-rated type ads, but because the, the underlying product was about, you know, improving a woman's sexual function, um, they banned it. But after these articles came out and they, it was, you know, the headline wrote, Facebook blocking women's health companies, then that's when all of a sudden overnight our ads were no longer being blocked. So, you know, it does, it takes a, a village in this case of everybody rallying together to just build awareness of the, how big of a market this is and how important it is to women and men ultimately uh, if we all just rally around women's health. 
Yeah, and to Colette's point, I think it's really important to get the real data and the real numbers so that people stop calling this a niche opportunity. 600 billion is huge. There's some number going around that's saying that FemTech is $50 billion. That's just not true. Digital health on its own is way more than that. Like Colette said, just the menopause space is more than that. Just incontinence is more than that. So I think we need to have the correct data out there so that people really understand just how large this opportunity is. And thank you again, Laura for putting femtech and women's health out there in the forefront because you're amplifying the voices that need to be amplified and you are creating change. Colette was only now allowed to advertise on Facebook because you chose to be daring and write an article exposing that. And so the more the media can do to kind of elevate these voices and these challenges, the more change that we'll see. You know, and I wanted to touch on something that you had talked about, I think, much earlier in the summer, we had a conversation about, you know, different funds being a little bit more diverse, maybe having more women, more people of color. What does that do to investment? Um, you know, is that is that possibly like an avenue or what does that look like um, sort of in the future, Maria? Yeah, well, they've shown, studies have shown that more women investors leads to more investment in diverse and women-owned companies. So that's just a fact. It's easier for us to be open to investing in other, you know, diverse people because we're diverse ourselves. I don't need a quota of investing in women or people of color because it's just something that's natural. Um, maybe some of the other VC funds need to be tracking metrics because, you know, they have this pattern matching going on that is having them be exclusive to you know other types of founders but i think one of the issues is that um there's not a lot of women in vc so as colette's saying oh a lot of these big vcs aren't writing checks to women's health it's because they don't have women gps most of the women um you know general partners who worked in these larger vcs have left and started their own because even though you're in that seat you may not be listening like colette said if you're the only woman in a vc and there's all men they don't want to talk about you know some of the things um that you need to talk about or or that have to do with you know women's health or women's products they just don't get it they're not interested in it and so a lot of these women have left and started their funds but when you're starting your first or second fund you're only raising you know 25 50 100 million dollars you don't have access to a billion dollars to be writing 50 and 100 million checks per company. So that's another thing, even though there are starting to be, you know, a little bit of a groundswell of investors, still less than 2% um, of VCs, you know, are women who can, you know, really write their own checks. Um, you know, that limits the amount of checks that we can write into these companies. So it's really going to have to happen in a larger, more uh, systematic way so, um, to, to create change. But me and other VCs are, you know, we're working on it. We're forming coalitions of women so that we can invest together to make our checks, you know, bigger and, and more impactful. But it's going to take a while for that to happen. Something you both have touched on is this idea of femtech niche or not niche. Um, and I would love to hear, you know, what do you think, or do you think it gets pigeonholed right now? Um, or where, where do you think that will go in the future? Um, do you want to start us off, Colette? Well, you know, I think uh, what we're seeing is um, uh, that as if, and Marie actually pointed this out earlier, the more successful exits we have, that helps validate the market. And 
ultimately investors invest to make money. So if we can demonstrate that there's successful exits out there, that's what's going to get their attention. And so we're starting to see some exits. There were a couple that happened last year that were uh, very good returns for those investors that were in them. And they were uh, women uh, focused companies. So, um, you know, again, it's, I'm feeling more optimistic. Um, I think we're in the, still in the early stages, but everything is coming together. We're seeing uh, more investors. We're seeing, um, more companies being started in women's health, and we're starting to see exits happen. So when you have that, then it becomes like a snowball effect and that that snowball keeps getting bigger and bigger. So someday we'll get those $100 million hymns checks. Yeah, and I guess sort of to, to sort of cap off this podcast, we've talked a lot about challenges, but what do you see as the opportunities in femtech? Um, I'd love to hear from both of you on, you know, what are kind of the next five years? What are you hoping to see as opportunities? Um, maybe starting with you, Mar Maria, sorry. Well, for me, I'd like to see more companies addressing culturally competent care. I think we've seen that there's a large discrepancy of how women or how people are treated in the healthcare system um, based on your ethnicities. Our maternal mortality rates are devastating, especially to women of color. And so I would like to see more companies taking care to make sure that they are creating great outcomes for people of all colors and ethnicities and that everybody should be safe and able to access healthcare. I, and in terms of what I'm seeing, I, I'm seeing more female founded companies in women's health across the spectrum. And that to me is so encouraging because uh, it validates that there are real opportunities to be had. And from my perspective, I strongly believe uh, a rising tide lifts all ships. So the more that we have people, and I, I may not have said that quote correctly, but you get the idea. The more and more people we have coming into the space, everybody ultimately is going to uh, win because the awareness uh, that will come across the board, more female founders, more female investors, more companies being started, more exits, it's just going to uh, again, go back to that snowball effect. So it, it's, I, I'm feeling optimistic. Well, there have been many challenges. No one said being an entrepreneur was easy. So <laughs> I'm totally okay with that, but I'm encouraged by the trend in what's happening. Well, thank you so much both for being on and please keep me up to date with any other news coming up or any other challenges um, that you think need to be out there. Please let me know. Well, thank you again, Laura, for raising a visibility to women's health and for giving Maria and I the opportunity to speak. It's really important. As I said, this is going to take a village. Uh, so the more people that are in it, uh, the stronger it's going to be. Thank you.